0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host and I am in New York City back from a vacation and we are joined today in Washington, D.C. by Ed Luce of the Financial Times and Amanda Sloat of the Brookings Institution who is a new guest on the show uh, although she has been recommended to us for a long, long time, who is a specialist uh, uh, in uh, in uh, UK politics, has been following UK politics for a long time, um, uh, as well as a variety of other things. And from the UK, I think we have we have Corey Shockey. Um, uh, uh, who is, uh, you know, always with us. And um, this episode... But can I also
1: say, yes. sitting in London, I still learn about Brexit from that Brookings senior fellow, Amanda Sloan. <laughs>
0: Um Well, good. That, well... He noted
2: how mere mention of the word UK made Corey laugh.
1: <laughs> she
2: well, used to say she's sitting in the UK, and then Corey's stops
0: laughing. Well, I think
2: I try
1: not to cry, Ed. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, as as is Ed all the time. But uh, you know, I think, and I'll I'll start with you, um, Amanda. But I think uh, Brexit was pretty much summed up earlier this week when a British Airways flight headed for Europe uh, uh, to Dusseldorf actually accidentally landed in Edinburgh. Um, Which I found. um, (laughs) I was like, is this a metaphor? I mean, you know, is this what's going to happen in the future when they try to fly to Germany? Um, You know, we're at an interesting juncture in the Brexit saga. Uh, They've all been interesting, but we're at a point now where Theresa May, who can't seem to get anything going, has really got the the time running out. Um, And they're a couple of options, uh, uh, including if she can get Parliament to go for a no deal or, or her deal Brexit, then they would leave in May, I guess. If, if, if they uh, go for the no deal option, then it's April 12th. And then there's a third possibility of punting the whole thing for a year. Do you want to explain where you think we're at, where we'll be at uh, given events this week?
3: I, well, I think you basically summed it up, uh, and I constantly <laughs> am getting asked by, uh, by TV hosts to explain and predict what was going to happen. And I think if I could predict what could happen, I, I would probably make a lot of money with, uh, with, with businesses. I absolutely nobody knows. I, as Corey can attest, everybody sitting in London has no idea what's happening either. Uh, and as we are recording this, there is ongoing debate and in, in churn in, in Parliament, and so things will continue to unfold this week. I, the bottom line is that Theresa May still has not managed to get support for her Brexit deal. She's continuing to try and tweak it. None of those tweaks are actually getting additional people to support it. She would need 75 MPs to change their minds from the last two votes to, to come on board. Uh, Theresa May has been trying to hold the conservative party together by moving in one direction. Uh, you have a labor leader who's a lifelong Euro is, is quite supportive of Brexit himself, not really putting up an impassioned, uh, case in, in the opposite direction. Meanwhile, you've got a lot of churn within the British public. You had over a million people out on the streets of London this weekend. You have up to 5 million and counting people signing a, uh, petition calling for the, the whole thing to be stopped. Uh, so the reality is you either get Theresa May's deal through, uh, you decide to ask for a much longer extension, uh, or you end up having something change in British domestic politics, either a, a second election, uh, there's increasing call for a referendum. So at this stage, literally all options remain on the table.
0: Now I saw the 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 views of that per, um a demonstration in London, and they had like uh, drones flying over it, and it went on and on and on, and it was really one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. But I thought one of those drone views I saw you, Corey, there down in the middle of <laughs> was <laughs> it went, it was a fuzzy it was a fuzzy shot though. Were you in London for this demonstration?
1: I was in London, but I confess I did not go to the demonstration. Well, uh, well. Uh, because, uh, as I may have mentioned last week, the incredible complexities of this seem to me an indulgence uh, on the part of the British. Like there are three basic options: stay, leave, uh, or partway leave. And the torturous contortions that the political leadership of this country is putting through make me want to, you know, give them the advice from the original Star Wars movie about, right, jump down the trash chute, fly boy. There just aren't that many options and they're putting not just the country but they're putting the entire European Union through paroxysms on this. I actually am incredibly sympathetic to the growing exasperation on the part of the other members of the European Union and thought that the way that they handled the extension was was exactly right. Yeah, I mean, it the way that the British think nobody else's domestic politics matter, nobody else's party politics matter, they're, they're, um, they've gone down the rabbit hole, I think.
3: Yeah. I, I think that's that's right. I, and it, it risks paralyzing politics in the UK as well as in the rest of the EU. I mean, you now have the vast majority of British civil servants no longer doing their day job because they are scrambling to do contingency planning. You have a very divided cabinet, which means from an American perspective, to try and get the UK to partner on anything is almost impossible because there's no bandwidth. And if you look at the EU, they were supposed to be spending the summit talking about China and how to respond to potential economic threats and, and emerging threats. And the whole China discussion had to get scrapped to spend hours and hours coming up with what I agree with Corey was was quite a clever compromise on, on the Brexit extension.
0: Um. Well, it sounds a little familiar, by the way, that the critique of British politics. I I do want to point out that sometimes people ask, where do the clever uh, titles for the uh, Deep State Radio podcast come from? And uh, they come out of nowhere, but Jump Down the (laughs) Crash Shoot Flyboy is definitely the (laughs) the title for this podcast. Um, (laughs) I I, I think it sums up uh, where where we are. uh, Ed, did you, are you sorry you missed the million-person march there? I mean, uh, that kind of public... You mean that, that tiny gathering of a cabal of, of metropolitan elites? Yeah, it looked um, like the yeah. Trump inauguration to me. <laughs> I 25.
2: Uh Yeah, I, I do wish I'd been there. If I'd been in London, I would have definitely have joined it. I mean, I agree with Corey's um, characterization of the extraordinary you know, um, prolonged fit of absent-mindedness, um, that Britain's going through and and what that inflicts on its neighbors. Um, but there are a lot of British people who never asked for this and still don't want it and are pursuing passionately, um, the last minute opportunities to, um, to reverse it, or at least dilute it to the extent it can be diluted. And I'm very much one of them rather would be very much one of them. If I'd had, um, the opportunity to march, I would have marched. Uh, I I do feel very, very strongly about this. This is um, um, a a really disastrous, self-inflicted wound, and um, I I still hope against hope it can be, um, it can somehow be prevented, although um, what was the Gramsci quote? It's um, uh, um, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will.
1: Oh, that was elegant, Ed.
0: (laughs) Mm.
2: Thank you. It happens at once a blue moon.
0: Uh, no, no, it happens. It happens all the time, and uh, but but Amanda, you know, one of the things that Americans sometimes admire, sometimes don't really understand about the British system is that if if the prime minister really gets in trouble, they can call an election. The things can change. But somehow, Theresa May is in the worst pickle of any prime minister that we remember in 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 modern times. Um, and she's saying, no elections, we're going to do this my way, even though I don't know what my way is, even though I don't know how it's going to all work out. Um, and she's taking a hard line. And it seems to me, given the divisions that have been evident within the parliament so far, doesn't that suggest we're probably going to end up with this year-long punt?
3: I, that does seem most likely. I mean, Certainly the way you, the EU has been messaging is that they're very prepared for uh, contingency planning, they're they're prepared for the UK to crash out. I think there is still a possibility of that, but it does seem likely that we're going to be moving towards a much longer extension, because it's hard to see at this point how Theresa May gets her deal through. Uh, the irony of all of that is the UK then is going to be forced to hold European Parliament elections in May, which could end up with any sort of crazy cast of, of characters if you have half the country that wanted Brexit, uh, now inclined to vote for people that are are very hostile to it. I mean, I think the reason that Theresa May has survived as long as she has is not because she's particularly popular. I think there's a lot of uh, senior men in her cabinet, others who have left the cabinet that are standing behind her with knives drawn. And as soon as she either gets this deal through Parliament or comes up with, with some new plan, uh, the knives will be plunged in and she'll be overthrown. But none of them want to deal with this particular mess. At the moment. At the same time, you also have an opposition leader in Jeremy Corbyn who's seeing defections from his party to create a new independent group uh, because of his own mishandling of Brexit, as well as accusations of anti-Semitism within the party. So as, as unpopular as Teresa May and her deal is, I think people are finding the alternatives even more unpalatable.
1: I think that's exactly right.
2: So there was a there was a meeting, a quite bizarre meeting at Chequers. Uh, the Prime Minister's weekend uh, official weekend retreat over the weekend, where she invited all the sort of key troublemakers. Uh, I think twelve or thirteen white men, which is known as collective noun for which is blizzard. Lots of white things coming at you, <laughs> um, and they they turned up. They turned up in their jaguars, their three-piece suits. With, in the case of Jacob Rees-Mogg, um, a child, and offspring dressed exactly like him as a Victorian undertaker, uh, <laughs> and then, and she then tried to persuade them, you know, to vote for her deal for the third um, and hopefully final time when it comes up for a vote this week. And clearly, the only condition under which any of the these hardline Brexiteers would vote for her deal would be if she said uh, she. She combined the vote with an announcement she was leaving the job, and um, with a date by which she would leave it, um, which immediately prompted her to smell a rat, um, uh, namely that uh, whoever would replace her would then promptly reverse, <laughs> would reverse the May deal, or rather turn it into a full, a full hardcore Brexit. So um, it, it would it wouldn't be worth the, the paper it was written on. No. Paper is worth anything in British politics today, it should be said. <laughs> Nothing.
1: Well, like, I would, kind of point
3: would prefer that to have a, a hard Brexit anyway. So, you know, better to oppose her deal, guarantee that that a hard Brexit happens rather than continue to punt and, and risk not getting what it is you want.
2: Well, then you have, um, then you have what uh, I have to quote um, this Guardian piece I was reading today characterizing some of this. People talk about a managed no deal Brexit, um, but the, the question the Guardian writer asked was how can you shit your pants in a managed way? And the, <laughs> the, the question answers itself.
1: And <laughs> I'm so sorry, did have not I noticed I
2: I this discussion? I do apologize. <laughs> but my accent makes, me pe- makes people think I'm polite and well mannered. <laughs> so, I occasionally have to remind them I'm not.
1: So may I just add one point, which is that there's a fair amount of uh, Harvard Business School review type scholarship, Harvard Business Review type scholarship on the fact that um, corporations pick female leaders when things are so desperate that they think no one can succeed. And I feel like that's such a great Simile for Theresa May's experience. Nobody thinks she's a good prime minister. I mean, here in London, the conversation is, who is the worst prime minister in the history of Great Britain? Is it David Cameron for setting this whole thing off? Or is it Theresa May for how she has managed it? Um,
3: yeah, I have, I have I, to- well I,
1: I have another analogy I have to I have to
3: credit Christine Wormuth with who described Teresa May as the smart girl in class who was put in charge of the group project. Uh, and I think <laughs> she's she's trying to manage all of these unruly boys. She doesn't really believe in the project anyway, but her grade depends on it. And by God, she is going to get it done and make everybody else do their part to get it done.
1: That is excellent, but it might also exculpate her too much. I'm a little bit inclined towards Ann Applebaum's view from her Washington Post column that Theresa May's actually, we shouldn't view her as a victim. She's actually the lead actor in this and bears a lot of responsibility for the mistakes that have brought us to the British lion being on its knees at the moment. As, well, first, I, I, wouldn't, the General, I wouldn't describe
2: so. her as a man or a woman. She's, she's a robot. She's unable <laughs> to change her script.
0: <laughs> well, I should say, first of all, your analysis about women being given the problem when it reaches its insoluble point is certainly going to be good news for Kamala Harris. <laughs> uh, or, or Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, or... Uh, You know, take your pick. But, uh, you know, I was uh, bantering around a little bit, as one does on Twitter, about the general state of leadership in the world, um, uh, because I was thinking of Theresa May and also about Donald Trump and some others. And uh, Ed snarked straight back at me saying that, uh, you know, I was like, when was it this bad? And he said, well, the Plantagenets were not so good.
1: <laughs> well done, Ed. <laughs> and and they were I have pretty to say.
0: patchy dynasty. They were patchy, but, you know, there was Richard the Lionheart. You know, there were some things that happened in there, you know, that we, we look back at. I think that's unfair to the Plantagenets, but I want you to take it a step further. And, you know, is that, you know, comparing Theresa May to uh, your favorite Plantagenet king or queen? Go on, Ed.
2: Well, you see, Richard the Lionheart, you know, uh, um, contrary to the various Robin Hood movies, he didn't turn up in Sherwood Forest at the end of his life and
0: <laughs> you know put
2: Robin back, put Robin back in his manner. He was actually, uh, you know, he was actually killed by a French arrow um, uh, that went that that went into it so he's uh, he he, he wasn 't a particularly effective um king, and he did spend all of his country 's money plundering the middle East you know without really um, having been provoked into doing so in order to i don 't know get made a saint by the pope, whatever it is that made medieval kings um, Uh, a ride off to the Middle East and and burn Jerusalem um, was the same thing that motivated him. So he's the best Plantagenet. He's the best Plantagenet. But even he was a better and more decisive leader than Theresa May. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, if if you're worse than the Plantagenets, then uh, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know where else you've got to go, really. Well, um, but I I would agree with the, if I could just sort of merge the conversation that, that Corey's been having with people in London, I think the worst prime minister is Theresa Cameron or David May. It's some sort of blend of the two. These <laughs> two have absolutely taken Britain into a nosedive. And it's a sort of case study of a bad leadership, different circumstances, but how bad leadership can make a difference, and by implication, how good leaders can make a difference. And if they had a, a good prime minister in these circumstances, who who um, gave priority to country rather than party, that person could have realigned British politics, found a new found it, found a new centre. There is a consensus in Parliament um, for any leader of either party, either Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn, another sort of sub Plantagenet quality leader. There's a consensus there that either leader could have reached out and created and harnessed and and at the expense of their own party, but to the benefit of their country. And and we are led by pygmies or other donkeys, whatever the right analogy is. We are led by the lowest caliber of of leadership in in Britain's modern democratic history by far.
0: Well, so, Amanda, you know. To go back to um, Ed's very carefully planned here Plantagenet analogy, <laughs> you know Richard Richard the Lionheart <laughs> was followed asking. was followed by King John, and King John, despite his bad reputation, ended up um, being present at the signing of the Magna Carta, which was not a terrible development in the history of England. So there but is. But
1: it was if you're King John. It, it, well, for, for indeed, your nobles took consent that royal decree is actually beholden to their representative power.
0: Right. But 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 England somehow regenerated out of this. And I'm just wondering, Amanda, do you see any voices out there that suggest to you that this this drought of leadership could end at any time soon?
3: I'm wowed by by Ed's uh, deep knowledge of British history here, and and discovering that my uh, my own well of of British history is is not quite as 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 deep as his. I I mean, one thing that I find quite striking in in looking at these debates, and and I you know don't know if this ends up being a positive or a negative, but you actually have female leadership all across the UK. You've got the Scottish National Party led by a woman. You've got the Northern Ireland Assembly mm-hmm. now suspended uh, led by, uh, a woman, I, you know, so I, I think, you know, there, there are a number of voices out there. I mean, one of the interesting developments in the British parliament in the last couple of weeks has been the formation of this independent group which is people from both the Labour Party as well as the Conservative Party saying that they're very fed up with the tribal nature of politics in their party. They're, they're unhappy with the way the Brexit debate is going in the Labour Party. They're particularly unhappy with the way anti-Semitism is being handled. And they have formed this, this independent group, you know, the, the TIG for short. Uh, and at the moment, it doesn't have a, a leader. It doesn't have a clear set of policies. It's, it's unclear how it would stand in, in, in future elections in terms of developing political and economic policies. Uh, but it is an in, in interesting development within British politics that there is a, a move by, by people uh, within Parliament to try and see if there's a way to, to, to handle these debates differently.
0: Um, okay. I'm, I'm just wondering, Corey, as you talk to people there in the, in the, in the UK... Do you get see any sense or pockets of, of hope along this line?
1: It's a little hard to see at the moment, um, in part because there are so many unforced errors that bring the British government to where it is right now. Uh, so the series of votes that are going to go on... Um, before this recording is released, will probably, in a historically important way, take power from the government and give it to Parliament. Uh, the, and so that's hugely consequential. Whether that will be good either for Brexit or for Britain as a constitutional constitutionally formed government, I'm not sure. And... Uh, I think people were really hopeful over the weekend because of the big turnout for the um, for the support remaining in the European Union March. But it's not clear to me how the mechanics of this end up producing anything that's good for anybody, because the combination of Theresa May being beholden to the DUP, the, the Ireland Party, and also... To the extreme brexiteers in her own party, that's a function of her having called that election that destroyed her majority. That it wasn't the act an act of God; it was a political choice, and that so she's now bearing the consequences of that. But on the other side, the government's still more popular by five points than the Labour Party because Jeremy Corbyn is a chavista. <laughs> <laughs> he wants a hard Brexit because he wants Britain to be Venezuela.
0: <laughs> yes, but 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 anti-Semitic Venezuela. Let's be yes, specific. and
1: yes, exactly right, David. An anti-Semitic Venezuela is what Jeremy Corbyn wants. So the the problem is the political leadership of, of the parties, and the it's hard to see how that gets wrenched short of a French-style revolution. So in the near term, it's really not good.
3: Well, the other problem is that you've got a deeply divided country. So certainly MPs, political parties, are not covering themselves in in great glory at the moment. But, you know, there's been snap polls done after the, the second defeat of Theresa May's deal. And it found that you know, public support with there was public unhappiness with her deal. There was increasing support for No Deal, but there was also increasing support for a second referendum and for remaining in the European Union. And so, part of the reason that you've got such parliamentary gridlock is that these MPs are representing constituencies that in themselves are very divided. And I think Corey's reference to the Snap elections in June 2017 is is right. I mean, you had a very narrow referendum that was won in 27, 2016 with a certain Mandate. And then you had snap elections that decreased conservative support, made her dependent on Northern Ireland, uh, and increased labor support, but not enough for their vision of Brexit to get through either. So I think very similarly to the way in the U.S., you've got people marching in Washington against Donald Trump and and being very opposed. You've got half the United States that that supports what he's doing. I think similarly in the U.K., uh, you've got a public that is as just as polarized as as political leaders in parliament are.
0: So, Ed, one issue of this that ties into another story that we discussed earlier in the week um, uh, has to do with the... Um, Mueller report, which is as yet uh, unreleased at the time of this recording. Um, and and that is that this Brexit vote also involved having a kind of a Russian thumb on the scale, uh, that there was Russian support and efforts to end up with the brexit vote uh, that eked out a victory much as Donald Trump did. Uh, and that, you know, the, apparent effort to wrap up the Mueller investigation in the United States leaves open the possibility that we're not really going to get to the bottom of the connections here uh, and see this as part of a broader Russian effort to destabilize Western um, democracies and achieve their own outcomes. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that.
2: Well, I mean, I agree. If, if, if Robert Mueller can't sort of get get to the uh, a provable level of conspiracy and coordination between uh the Trump campaign and um, and the Kremlin, given what we know, given what's been publicly available and reported by my colleagues. And I've no doubt he tried as hard as he could. The you know, level of proof, the burden of proof is extremely high, particularly for corrupt intent. Um, you know, you've got to sort of in some way get into the head of the person whose intent is corrupt and prove that. And it's very difficult to prove. So I think, you know, the long and short of it is we know we know enough as attentive citizens and readers and so forth um, to know all we need to know about Trump and Russia Um, and we can make that judgment for ourselves, even if, um, you know, a, a law court isn't going to be doing so. We, we know that there's been um, what within common sense English um, be collusion, coordination. And um, undoubtedly, I'm sorry to say, we'll probably see, um, we'll probably see a more uh, aggressive, a less constrained sort of reach out to Putin by Trump, it, 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 a vindicated feeling Trump in the months ahead. It, it, as far as Britain's concerned, look, if Mala can't prove it here, various criminal investigations that are into the eu.leave campaign you know which was which was the breakaway one there were two league campaigns um this was the nigel farage aaron banks one and aaron banks who as his name might suggest bankrolled it um it's very much in um in russia's pocket it's got all kinds of um um, you know, uh, mineral deals and so forth in Russia that he discussed by the Russian ambassador during the referendum campaign and um, uh, and took money from the Russians. So there could well have been a lot of Russian money behind the referendum. And there was, of course, also, you know, the whole Cambridge Analytica um, thing. I have no doubt that the Select committees in the House of Commons will continue to pursue this, and the, the sort of criminal divisions of the London police will continue to investigate it. But these things are hard to prove. You know, Trump, Trump um, might be uh, might be the sort of most repulsive person ever to sit in the Oval Office, but he understands how to keep his fingerprints off things. And I think that, um, you know, the, the Russians understand how to... Um, how not to be um, caught red-handed every time. And, and so I suspect we're just going to have to rely on what our eyes, ears, common sense, and brains tell us, which is Russia has interfered in, in, in our democracies, not just Britain and America, and will continue to try to interfere. And the, the fact that um, here in America, we've seen no serious effort to strengthen the electoral infrastructure um for the 2020 presidential election is a cause for deep concern
3: yeah I think uh- I- it, it's, it's also interesting that it's it's the it, the legislative branches in in both countries that are looking into the the Russian interference. I mean, Trump and his administration certainly have denied a lot of allegations of it because they don't want to see it as delegitimizes delegitimizing Trump's election victory. Uh, and it's quite striking if you you listen to British government officials speak publicly because they also tend to be quite dismissive of claims of of Russian interference, notwithstanding the reporting in the Guardian and a lot of others. As Ed was. Saying about uh, what what Aaron Banks and others are doing, and so in the UK, the the drive for information into Russian interference is also being led much more by Parliament than it is by the the government, which presumably doesn't want to believe that its referendum results were in any way invalidated by by Russian interference.
0: Corey, it suggests to me that when you guys. Um, uh hold your annual spymaster of the year award ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that Vladimir, Pu- Vladimir, Vladimir Putin's got to be in the running, right? I mean, this guy, you know, I mean, we all talk about, you know, how Trump was gloating about this Mueller thing. And, and I, I don't want to get into that. We've discussed that before, you know, but, but, you know, this kind of this this kind of rigged outcome. But if you look at this, you look at what's going on in the UK, you look at what's gone on across Europe, Putin seems to be doing these egregious things. We know he's doing these egregious things, and he's getting away with it without paying much of a penalty. It's really kind of a remarkable achievement, isn't it?
1: Well, um, yes and no, David. So on the one hand, uh, Putin's government is—so we are—liberal societies are prosperous, they're strong, they're vibrant, they're creative. They are all of the things that that Vladimir Putin's Russia isn't. And he has done an extraordinarily adroit job of playing the margins of the spectrum in ways that— prey on free society's openness and the slow um, way it takes us to build public consensus and public awareness and figure out how to counter bad things that are happening in our societies. So so yeah, he certainly succeeded on those terms of playing a weak hand very well. But the other piece of it is that in the longer strategic timeline, I do actually think it's self-defeating. That is, he has managed to persuade us that Russia's the enemy, which was not what we wanted after the end of the Cold War. And, And if you look at all of the ways we have tried to encourage the Russians to become a Western country, to include it on equal terms with others. What the Russians wanted was to be as powerful and feared and respected as the Soviet Union was when Russia is none of those things. And and so they have made a choice to uh, in to try and undercut the resilience of Western societies, to interfere in our elections, to magnify um, divisiveness in our societies, and and we're just at the start of the process of realizing that, acknowledging it, hardening ourselves against that. But but Putin has persuaded us through the poisonings the terrorist attack inside britain that russia conducted poisoning uh, people in salisbury that the things that russia has done have finally persuaded us that they're not going to opt into the system and we need to protect ourselves against them and that will ultimately be self-defeating for russia
0: Let me just flip back to other Brexit outcomes here, because we only have a couple of minutes left. Um, Amanda, one thing that people, or some of May and her group, uh, seem to be comfortable with is this idea of this no deal Brexit, which could be the thing that would be upon us the most quickly of of all of these outcomes, uh, just in a couple of weeks. I just was wondering for listeners who are not as immersed in the details of this as 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 they they ought to be, um, what would the consequences of that be?
3: Uh, I think they would actually be quite significant, uh, and there's a number of them. Uh, for one, there would be no withdrawal agreement. So this deal that has been negotiated but not passed tries to facilitate a smooth end to current arrangements, and it sets up a 21-month transition period, during which time the UK would remain part of the European Union, uh, remain bound by its its rules, its benefits, but not be part of the decision-making process. And the idea for that is it would give businesses and citizens time to adjust. So goods that are placed on the market can reach their destinations, ongoing police and judicial operations could get concluded, All of that would end, uh, and there would be no transition period. Second, there would be no specific arrangement for the future rights of 3 million EU citizens living in the UK and a million British citizens living in the European Union. Uh, So British retirees living in Spain, do they get their social security checks? Do they have access to health care on the Spanish system that's reimbursed by the UK? Uh, border checks would be reimposed, and that's what's leading to all of these questions about rising food prices and stockpiling medicines, supply chain disruption. So suddenly, all of the trucks that would be coming from France into England would would need to be uh, checked. Uh, you would need to have a a hard border in Northern Ireland, uh, which we can come back to because I think there's significant implications there. On the economic side, the UK would go back to trading under WTO rules, and so there would be significant tariffs on all European goods coming in. In an effort to try and reduce sticker shock, the U.K. is saying it would temporarily suspend some of those tariffs, Uh, but you could have very disadvantageous trade terms. Uh, The U.K. would immediately be out of Europol, It would no longer have access to the European arrest warrant. So there's also implications on on the security side. So on one hand, from the hard Brexiteer perspective, this is fine. It gives clarity because everything is done. On the other hand, you would need to have a significant amount of scrambling to try and cobble together piecemeal arrangements to deal with all of these things.
0: you know, it seems kind of you know, mind boggling to me that a that a country could do that to its people. Um but uh as as options go, that seems like the second most likely option after this kind of longer punt, or do I have that completely wrong?
3: No, I think that's I think that's possible. I mean, you'll, you'll see a lot of talk in the British press and in the British Parliament about, you know, Parliament wanting to vote against no deal and to take no deal off the table. The problem with that is you can't. No deal remains the default unless there is a deal. Or unless the UK, which it has the right to do, revokes its notification of, of leaving the EU and says, you know what, this was a bad idea. We want to stop the whole thing and, and just stay in. Uh, but in unless that happens or unless there is a deal that's agreed, the only alternative would be for the UK to request a, a longer term extension. Uh, the problem is even if you have a longer term extension, there is still this, this great divide within the, the British population. And no majority position on whether or not people want to have close relations with the the EU, more distant relations with the EU. And even if you get a deal agreed, that's sort of the easy part. That's dealing with the divorce. You now need to deal with what the future is going to look like. And so all of these debates that are happening now are essentially proxy arguments over what the future looks like. So even with the deal, we are still going to have years and years of these exact same arguments playing out.
1: That's a really nice point about
3: the proxy, proxy arguments. I mean, the reality that the UK faces is that the more closely aligned it is with the European Union in terms of economic and other regulations, the easier it is to solve the situation in Northern Ireland, the easier it is to maintain existing trade connections with the EU. The problem is that makes it harder for the UK to have the economic independence that a lot of the Brexiteers supported, especially to be able to negotiate free trade agreements with the US and others. And so the UK fundamentally needs to make a decision about how close it wants to stay with the EU. And there are consequences in both directions.
0: We've only got about two minutes left here. Ed, did you want to add something?
2: I was just going to add to what Amanda said that I bet you did a poll of british people today uh and asked um, whether it'll all be done and dusted by whether it's april 12th or may the 22nd 95 percent would say yes they would not realize that this was just the overture to much longer deeper broader more detailed negotiations for the european or the future british european relationship we talk about brexit exhaustion we ain't seen nothing yet Uh, this this is going to make any sort of groundhog day analogy look completely inappropriate it's going to be a deeply exhausting uh, adrenal fatigue that we're all going to get um accustomed to and and uh, i wonder whether that fatigue is going to particularly if there's um an extension by a year or more. Um, there's going to be um a fatigue um leading to a change of heart. So again, this might be me being hopeful, but it's it, it's it's we're not even at the end of the beginning yet. We're not at the end of the beginning.
0: It seems it seems like things are looking up for the plantagenets though in, in terms of <laughs> the comparison. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, well you know that's where the phrase morning well, England John was coined. coined. <laughs> this is not a this is not a merry England, I could assure you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying that Theresa May and David Cameron have resuscitated <laughs> the reputation well, of the Plantagenets? Exactly. <laughs> I tell you what. I tell you
2: what. David Cameron, um, in the in the budgets that his government produced in the build up to the referendum. Was really good at stealing from the poor and giving to the rich,
0: and so you know, no surprise they
2: were pissed off when they when they were asked if everything was
0: okay. Well, there you go, folks. In, in no time at all, Kevin Costner or Errol Flynn or Sean Connery or 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 Russell Crowe. For those of you who want a really bad Robin Hood movie, um, will swing 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 into you and and.
1: Uh, no, I did not need that visually.
0: Yeah, no, that was a bad movie. But in any event, um, Amanda, Corey, Ed, thank you for bringing us up to date on this very important story. But based on what Ed has just said, I think we'll have many opportunities to discuss this again in the future. <laughs> and I look forward um, um, to. Look
1: forward's uh, probably a little strong, right? Yeah,
0: well, exactly. Exactly. Anyway, thank you all very much. And for the rest of you, uh, please uh, join us again uh, on Deep State Radio, uh, either by going to com or dsrnetwork.com, uh, listening to our other podcasts, reading the other kind of content, and uh, uh, watch this space for uh, news of uh, other, other developments that we've got percolating. Um, thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media.